AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for October 14th, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by, first, Jim Kleising online. And Jim, uh, this is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. What are you doing to celebrate? Well, I am actually reminding my family about ways to keep safe. That uh, sounds like a good idea. And, uh, we're joined here in the studio with Matt Kaiser. Matt, how about you? Well, I, I already try and remind run my friends and family to keep safe. I'm trying to do it in a more accessible and less jargony way. <laughs> yeah, get rid of the jargon. That's actually a, that's a very good point. That we often talk about things in language that we understand. It's, uh, it's It actually can be quite difficult to pick up somebody off the street or a family member or something and explain even what you do for a living, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so good, good point, Matt. And, uh, also, John Hogeboom, what are you doing? <laughs> well, uh, I actually have a special mission today to return my mom's computer to her, which I was fixing all this weekend. So yeah, you're fortunately, she took my advice and her machine was not infected. It was a whole different issue, but we won't go into the details of what the actual issue was because it's a little technical. <laughs> <laughs> it's all too, too much jargon for this Actually, program. you know, it wasn't that technical. You know what it was? She had two mouse receiver things on. So every time she'd click her mouse, both receivers were picking receiver. it up. So she thought there was something messed up with her computer because you couldn't click on anything or it would try to double click and it's confusing. That's, a, that's a actually a So yeah, it was a legitimate scenario. issue and I was like, I don't know what's going on with this thing and I don't have time, so I'm just taking it. And then I figured it out as soon as I got home with it. But anyway. Okay, so <laughs> rule of thumb, watch what's in the thumb drive hole. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Trying to put it in practical terms here. Okay, so uh, I have to admit, I haven't been uh, really paying all that much attention to National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, but I guess I'm going to renew that now. And, it, and you know, a site that was pointed out to us is the uh, staysafeonline.org site. And uh, I think this is, you know, let's take a look at it. It has a lot of different categories, different uh, areas where you can uh, take a look at it and learn some things about how to keep safe online. It has advice for parents, businesses, families, uh, identity theft protection, that sort of thing. So I encourage folks to take a look at it. And Jim, you've taken a little bit of a look at this site. What do you think? Yeah, I, this is a, a site that I've uh, you know, been watching for the last few years during uh, October. And they've got some really good material there. I've, I've actually pointed my parents at some of it uh, on a couple of occasions in the past. So yeah, it's, it's a good one. Great. So uh, I guess I encourage folks to take a look at it and uh, give us your feedback. What do you think? And uh, if you can think of something that can be done to improve it, perhaps we can uh, provide some influence. And heck, you don't need us. You can just go to this website and it'll help you out. So, uh, well, perhaps there are a few things that we can add to uh, value here. I don't think they really talk about the details of threats, but uh, first item we have here, John, uh, you're going to talk us a little bit about with us a little bit about the QBot and some analysis that was done gets into a lot of detail. Right, yeah, so if you're uh, really interested in the uh, infrastructure of a cybercrime enterprise, and let's face it, who isn't, right? Everybody's interested in that, at least we are. But this is a really good detailed uh, analysis of the Quackbot 
also they call it Qbot, but uh, a lot of other people out in the industry have called it Quackbot for years. Mm -hmm. Proofpoint has put together analysis here, and it's a really interesting. Uh, we're just going to quickly walk through some of the the higher, you know, the more important bullet points. It's a Russian cybercrime group, most likely based on their um, based on the language preferences that they have there. Mm -hmm. They're focused on collecting financial information, like bank account information, typical stuff. And Quackbot's been in operation probably since around 2008 timeframe. It's been around in various forms. Right. The current form is probably a lot different than it used to be. Uh, you know, back in when it started in 2008, it's still out there and going strong. They kind of broke this into five phases of how this uh, botnet is structured and the various components in it. So the first one, we talk about this all the time, they infect these legitimate websites, a lot of them are um, WordPress ones, and they've either done that through compromised account credentials for the administrative cPanel control panels of those web servers, or just brute force their way in. There's a lot of other interesting detail in this report that I'm not going to show you pictures of, but they talk about web shells and, you know, they'll, they'll drop web shells on these machines so they can maintain access to these web servers. Mm -hmm. Then they use those as a means to uh, propagate the malware. So they'll either fish emails out there to people. If they click on the links, they'll get pointed to one of these websites. And we've seen this a lot, I know Matt has in a lot of his analysis. What happens is a lot of times the first website you go to sends you to another thing that kind of like looks at what's going on here. And it's called a traffic direction service. This is another interesting component. That's the next component in, in this uh, phase two. So they actually have a component there that will look at your user agent strings in your browser, figure out does this really look like a real machine and not like a web crawler? or some kind of security analysis machine trying to do something to analyze the malware. If it looks like a legitimate piece of, uh, a legitimate browser, and one that they can infect, like not a Mac or not a Linux machine and whatnot, then it redirects them, redirects the browser to a real place to go to. Otherwise, it dumps them to kind of, um, uh, like a decoy site, they call it, just a, a place that's not going to impact them or do anything. So, you know, a security analyst would be like, oh, this just goes nowhere and doesn't do anything. You know, if they're using WGET or something like that to try, you know, to fetch this thing. But if they used a real user agent, it looked like a real browser, they'd ultimately get to the next phase, which is phase three. And this will actually do your regular stuff, like deliver an exploit kit down to the browser, try to leverage various exploits like Java, et cetera, et cetera, or whatever. There's other, you know, Adobe Flash, other types of vulnerabilities that they'll try and exploit kit. And then assuming that that all works, uh, the malware will get delivered to the machine. That would be phase four. And then once the malware's on there, it's gonna go through and try to collect uh, account credentials over time as you log into websites, or it might even harvest logins and passwords that are saved in your, you know, like the Internet Explorer mm -hmm. browser, you can save your passwords, or Firefox does the same. In any event, so it's real interesting, especially if you go look through the whole article, because they'll talk about various things. Like I said, web shells. They talk about the various control panels for management of the botnet, mm -hmm. uh, the traffic direction service, how that works. It's its own special component that they have in there. So it's really, uh, very interesting, very detailed if you're into that kind of thing. The last phase, uh, phase five, they actually take all of the infected bots. So beyond just harvesting all the login credentials and using it for their own purposes to steal money from people's bank accounts, probably in small amounts at a time. So maybe they won't notice or complain, but you do that for some 500,000 bots like they potentially compromised here that could add up pretty quickly, especially you just do it once in a while. 
But beyond that, they monetized the entire botnet and they turned it into a big proxy bot, which we've seen these before. Notably, I know uh, Stan, one of the guys who's also on the show frequently, has looked at Googost as another proxy type botnet where they take all these bots, they turn them into kind of proxy bots. Uh, so it's almost like your own tour network. Right. Composed of, yeah, it's an anonymized network composed of your own compromised bots, and then they resell it out to other criminal actors so that they can use it mm -hmm. to anonymize their activity and their um, uh, transactions and whatnot. So. Uh, for their own purposes. So it's an interesting, they use, uh, they mentioned they use um, a module called Sox Fabric as part of the QBot, and other ones have used similar type of te techniques like this. Mm -hmm. Another one that we've looked at is um, the not compatible botnet, which is actually composed of Android devices, uh, either phones or tablets, that does a very similar thing. They use mm -hmm. that as a, another proxy type botnet. Not as a library of, of a infection process. You know, they don't have really the four phases of infection process. Right. In that case, it's usually just the Trojan app on an, on an off-market app store. But right. it, it, the end function The end function, is phase similar, five, yeah. they do a very similar thing, right? right? The other interesting thing that I thought they noticed in this article is that 52% of the bots were Windows XP. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, I wonder if that has something to do with the origin of this botnet and that it's been around for a very long yeah. time and maybe the ones that they originally got back in 2008 and they've just kind of been maintaining them over the lifespan of this botnet mm -hmm. um, uh, kind of carried forward into, into what they have today. Whereas in the market share, they're guessing, you know, probably 20 to 30 percent of all business machines really are XP still. Most people right. have moved on at this point. And we've seen so, what appears to be some similar behavior associated with the zero access botnet as well, whereas there hasn't really been any new infection activity recently. You know, we don't know what types of machines are underneath there, but it's most likely not the most recent version of Windows. It's probably a lot of machines that have been, uh, you know, basically infected years ago at this point. Right. And, uh, but they're still apparently usable. Yeah, there's still lots of zero access ones out there as well. Just like, yeah, that's one of these things where if botnet operators, if they're smart and they keep their, not to say 500,000 is a small botnet, but you keep it small enough and you don't make enough waves that people get all upset and then you get mm -hmm. the antivirus vendors and you know, the Microsofts of the world are partnering with each other to say, let's try to do a takedown on this botnet, like they did with zero access, mm -hmm. although it seems to have recovered anyway. Keeping a low profile seems to, uh, you know, yeah. well, increase the longevity of the botnet. Well, that was the, whole, that was the whole issue behind the Zeus botnets, that they were really botnets of just a few hundred, but it was many, many botnets right. that, that were associated with Zeus. We tend to even think about it as one botnet now because there have been so many of them that fit into that same class of malware. And uh, the, the zero access, as you said, one of the things that made it, um, uh, the, the basic command and control had basically been shut down, but the P2P network was still kept alive. And so that was one of the things that uh, made it resilient to the, to the takedown efforts despite its size. So, you know, there are a lot of, I think, uh, nuances that you can take a look at and what, you know, what has made these successful or not. There's a lot of IRC-based botnets still, yeah, out, still there out there that uh, they're just small enough that uh, they aren't really getting a whole lot of attention. And uh, that's, that inherently is a problem in itself, that we have to just really be vigilant in terms of protecting our own systems and uh, you know, doing what we can to identify the characteristics of these botnets and knock them down. Anyway, really good paper. I suggest yeah. people take a look at it. It's very detailed. If you're into the kind of nuts and bolts of how these actors set up their 
botnets and their cybercrime infrastructures, uh, they go into a lot of detail, which uh, is really mm -hmm. interesting, especially from a defense standpoint. You kind of understand all the various components and what you might need to look for um, as a defender against this type of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, as I shared with you before, the, the thing that really kind of caught my eye was that the deliberate, you know, description of the decoys mm -hmm. in there that if it looked like a, you know, a security company or something that was trying to go in to, uh, to visit the drop point, that uh, they would basically send them off to the decoy and, and rather than give them the malware. And it's th those sorts of characteristics that, um, you know, really think are a little bit scary, <laughs> you know, when you think about the level of sophistication and thought that's gone into these. But it's, uh, it, as you said, being around since 2008, the developers have had a significant opportunity to uh, evolve and, you know, learn their, their trade, right. if you want to call it that. The scariest thing for those traffic direction systems, in my opinion, is that I mean, they get used for all sorts of things. I mean, mm -hmm. Some people will use them to redirect SEO or spam sort of stuff. You know, you'll end up at some sort of, you know, weight loss pill site. But the fact remains that, you know, you don't know what the decision is to redirect you to that site as opposed to some right. malware. Maybe you're not in the correct geographic region for the, the targeted campaign. Maybe right. you're not using or the right browser. Language or right, and, if, right. and as an analyst, it gives you a lot more variables to have to test. And you say, okay, this is a spam link that I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. You know, how many things do I have to try before I finally get to the exploit kit? Right. It could be anything. And to some extent, it might be just a lot of probability. <laughs> <laughs> and we've seen ones too that track your IP. So if you visited right. once, yep. they don't allow you to go there a second time and get the malware. Right. Um, so you better get it right the first time when you go to test. <laughs> you know, as an analyst, you know, to, to check the malware out. Take a look. <laughs> Learn a little bit more about uh, the sophistication of these uh, attack activities. I think that's, uh, it, you know, like John's already said here, it's a, it's a good article. So let's go to you, Matt, and um, you know we're always concerned about man-in-the-middle attacks. So uh, I guess we don't want to include that as a part of our code, right? <laughs> Correct. So what happened was um, it seems the maintainers of CyanogenMod, which is a popular alternate software suite for the Android phones, mm -hmm. um, other Android devices, it seems that by mistake they included some example code for SSL that was being given away by, I believe, Oracle but it was for an older version that had mm -hmm. a flaw, which has since been patched everywhere else. This made it into the mainline code. Now, the, the flaw is that SSO, uh, the client side, would not correctly validate certificates based mm -hmm. on the host name. So you could, through a c combination of you know, legitimate details and you know, illegitimate details, craft SSL certificates that would appear to be, to the, the phone, correct, mm -hmm. allowing for man-in-the-middle attacks. The, the, the real upshot of the story is that if you're a developer, you know, it, it really does fall on your shoulders to look at the code you're using. If you plan on reusing example code or, you know, even if it appears to be the most boilerplate of code that everyone else has been using for years, mm -hmm. it really does behoove you to look at it and say, do I understand what I'm putting into my system? Right. Because if you don't, you know, you know this, is pro this was at, at the time, you know, a mistake that someone mm -hmm. had accidentally put into the code and it made its way in. If someone had intentionally put in some sort of security flaw, you know, that, that's even worse. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's a, and, um, supposedly the notion of using open source code. And I think there's a, there, there perhaps are some subtleties here, whether you're reusing a segment of code from somebody else or using something that's in the open source under a license 
agreement and actually maintained as a part of the open source community. Mm -hmm. There may be a little subtle difference in that because if you're just reusing code, an example, for example, or a sample set of code, you're not getting maintenance support. You better understand what it is and how that impacts your design, your system, mm -hmm. and your life cycle support activities, whereas the bash incident is a little bit different because there is a patch available for bash. Mm -hmm. You can incorporate it as a part of your system. It's a little bit different. And that was right. one of the more interesting points that came out of the whole shell shock bash problem, is that the, the, the saying used to be, given enough eyes, all bugs are shallow. <laughs> but it's not the case. No, I think it's, it's a lot of, there's, there are a lot of nuances in these attacks that, are, you know, the exploits that you could argue in the beginning that wasn't a vulnerability, but it's under the circumstances, specific circumstances, where it really becomes a vulnerability. It may not have been intentional. It was an undocumented feature, right? <laughs> right. But it wasn't, you know, one of these obvious cases where you have a buffer overflow where you're using memory that you shouldn't have used. It was, I think it was a subtle, I don't know, I think that's my subjective uh, opinion. Do, do you agree? Well, it, it was a vulnerability, in my opinion, but it was something that I think should have been detected a long time ago if, mm -hmm. in fact, people were maintaining open source code the way that everyone believes that open source code is being mm -hmm. maintained, mm -hmm. especially for such a key component as Bash. Right. So I feel like what needs to happen is there need to be more of these, these, I guess, ad hoc code audits, or perhaps at least something more like when OpenSSL was found to be vulnerable. A consortium came together and said, mm -hmm. we're going to do this because we know it needs to be done, right. a volunteer right. effort. Yeah. So maybe it's time to start building more of these small groups around core components, identifying mm -hmm. them and saying, look, we all use this. We all rely on this. Someone has to look at it, and it may as well be us. Wow. The, uh, we could create a really good bureaucracy around open source that will really slow it down to the point of no, <laughs> I'm being facetious. I'm being a little nervous there. <laughs> uh, I, think, uh, I think that the, the merits of open source are still there. The, the opportunity to discover problems certainly exists, but it, I think your, your point is right, to perhaps formalize it a little bit more, make sure there's a review process around things, looking for things. I think there's still always going to be you know little things that slip through the crack, but it's... Uh, we, we can only hope for improvement, right? And try for it. All right, good. Well, thanks, Matt. This is, uh, I think that was a good story here. So let's go to you, Jim. And uh, you've been quiet. Let's uh, talk a little bit about um, some of the recent activities with Windows. The first thing I want to talk about is a, a report um, or a blog post and, and a report out this morning from iSight Partners about a, a phishing campaign that was uh, initially primarily targeting folks in Eastern Europe and potentially some folks in the U.S. that was taking advantage of a zero-day uh, exploit in, in the Windows OLE component that they were sending phishing emails with a weaponized PowerPoint attachment to them and if folks clicked on this PowerPoint because of this vulnerability, they would download and execute a malicious payload that would then give the attackers uh, control over the machines. The, the, target, the, the folks that were doing this were a group that, that iSight calls the Sandworm Team. I guess there are some other names for them. They're basically uh, an APT outfit out of, apparently out of Russia. The, using Russian language in the files and 
and then the command and control servers. So they, they're taking advantage of this uh, zero day. Uh, Microsoft has released a patch today that, that fixes this vulnerability. And so um, iSight coordinated their, their disclosure with Microsoft's release of the patch. They've given it the CVE 2014-4114, and that's patched by uh, Microsoft Bulletin MS14-060. But this this has been seen in the wild, uh, mm-hmm. so when you get the Microsoft patches, it's one you do need to apply as soon as possible. Uh, Matt and John, I know you've both looked a, a little bit at this. Anything more you want to add? Well, the, the flaw itself I found pretty interesting. It seems that OLE objects are actually allowed to make reference to remote objects mm. on, say, a Samba share or a web, uh, web dev share, mm. which is a little bit weird. Um, but things like executable code, mm. like a, an INF file, which in this case um, was actually used against one of the targets in the campaign. So you would open up this PowerPoint. It would make reference to these two files, one of which was executable. And the second one, which was named as a .gif file, I think, actually was the Black Energy malware itself. Okay. Yeah, so any of the files coming down you know, in traffic would look fairly innocuous. Maybe the INF might raise a few eyebrows, but the .gif would probably would not. Right, right. Yeah, so... The thi- well, one of the th- my observations was that Black Energy typically have pretty much associated with crimeware mm-hmm. type activity, not really espionage-related activities. So it's a little interesting to me that they're leveraging a toolkit that's, and we've talked about this before because we've heard of some tell of Zeus being used in espionage-related activities as to gain a foothold on the machines and whatnot. You know, I think there's a lot of people, myself included, when I see a black energy infection, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not gonna go you know, to, to DEF CON 1 here or whatever the worst mm-hmm. level is. Right. I always forget it. But in any event... <laughs> I um, have to watch war games again. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, maybe we should pay closer attention to all infections right. and almost treat all infections as the potential for espionage-related activity. Because right. you never know if one of those are going to get flipped into into being uh, used by some actor as part of an espionage campaign. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I think that's inevitably the case, that uh, what we've tended to see is a lot of... Uh, you know, if you were to kind of split it into two general categories, we tend to see a lot of the, you know, Middle Eastern crime activity, of which the it, it appears that the nation-state activity is kind of intermingled, and they're a lot more difficult to identify as it's specifically that activity. Whereas, you know, when you talk about the, uh, the what's generally referred to as the China activity, there really isn't a lot of the crime where activity going on and so the you know other activity tends to be a little more apparent and so the question becomes you know how do you deal with the the two in terms of prioritizing and and certainly there are other activities as well that we need to be paying attention to so all very good points yeah this this last campaign the the eyesight blog post says this most recent campaign that was utilizing this particular Mm -hmm. vulnerability was uh, spear phishing targeted at the Ukrainian government and at least one U.S. organization timed to coincide with the NATO summit on Ukraine that was held in Wales mm-hmm. back at the Gee, end of yeah. August. Yeah. Gee, I wonder who was behind this. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, it's just as a... Yeah. 
I think just as a practical matter, I think there's a lot of entrepreneurial activity that's going on here. That is, if you have a buyer for the product, it doesn't necessarily need to be directly, you know, nation state sponsored in order to associate with the activity itself. And maybe somebody that believes they have, they can get a product that they can sell to somebody and monetize product, their activity. Intelligence. It could be intelligence. It could be, you know, fraudulent bank transfers. You know, so that the distinction right. from a criminal versus nation state we tend to separate the two in terms of how we think about things but the fact is it may in fact be very similar actors or the same actors in fact that are uh, performing these activities with just a different type of product that they're trying to get out of right. it and you, you even referred to two different fundamentally different products in the Qbot discussion a little bit earlier where the first mode of operation is to try to get information for identity theft or for transaction fraud, that type of activity, and then transition it to actually selling those computers as a compute resource or a proxy resource to others. And uh, those are two fundamentally different products, same attackers. Ultimately, it can shift even along right, the way. Right. So, so Jim, uh, to prevent some of this, I apparently, <laughs> there are apparently some other patches. <laughs> Right, yeah, today is Patch Tuesday uh, from Microsoft, and they have eight, pat eight bulletins out today. In their pre-announcement, they were saying they were going to have nine, so I was kind of surprised there were only eight. Microsoft rates three of them, I guess, as, as critical because of potential remote mm -hmm. code exploits. A big Internet Explorer patch again this month. And that's one of the critical ones. There's a .NET. There's a, a true type font parsing that has uh, been used, that's rated critical, that's been used in remote code execution. Surprisingly, the MS14-060, the one that we just talked about, they only rate as important. They don't rate that as critical. This, I, I kind of disagree with with Microsoft on this one, if there are exploits in the wild for this, I, I kind of rated a little higher than that, but that's that's my own personal yeah. rating. Of the eight Microsoft bulletins, there are exploits in the wild for three of them, which is a lot. Uh, you know, normally we get maybe one a month that there is exploit code out there in the wild already. I, I always say this every month. You know, you should apply them. You know, as soon mm -hmm. as practical, anyway. But with exploit code out there for three of them, you know that's uh, it. Really, is a big deal this month. Absolutely. Yeah. The uh, you know, it baffles me that we're still dealing with uh, true type font parsing <laughs> vulnerabilities, let alone exploits. That one kind of amazes me. And uh, well, I guess I'm at least a little bit surprised that that hasn't quite quite been solved yet. That's one of the ones that's being ex uh, exploited in the wild. You know, it, it's the same. It's in the same driver DLL um, that that we've had a bunch of these parsing issues over the years that have led to remote code mm -hmm. execution. All right. Well, get patching, folks. And um, yeah, I guess uh, speaking of exploits. <laughs> Let's uh, talk a little bit about the activity that's been taking place over the last week or so on the internet to give you a feel for the uh, 
some other types of uh, exploit attempts that might be taking place or uh, at least attempts to abuse, uh, abuse services. First one here is scan probes on port 53 TCP that's associated with DNS. Uh, typically DNS is on UDP, but in this case TCP can also be used. It's oftentimes associated with zone transfers. This is some activity that's obviously not new, showing 240 days of activity here. And the majority, actually the vast majority, like a factor of 10 more than anything else, of the probes are actually coming from a single source in China. It's not always the same source. It changes over time, but invariably, I, I think it's very closely related just because of the periodicity that you can see. There's a very regular periodicity associated with this. You might see some dark shades associated with There are actually some little bumps underneath of the, uh, the spikes and scanning activity. The dark shades could be a little bit of aliasing associated with the, the actual graphic here, but basically what you're seeing is pretty much on a daily schedule uh, some uh, fairly aggressive scanning activity, probably looking at different parts of the internet at different times to uh, try to identify where these DNS servers are. And it's not exactly clear what the motive here is, uh, but it certainly uh, it does not appear to be uh, legitimate in nature. And by the way, this same source is identified as having been doing scanning activity on port 21, 22, 23, 25. Uh, we talked about 53 here, port 80, 443, 3389, and 8080. So that basically refers to all of these services that you should be nervous about having on the internet or potentially could be exploitable through brute force password guessing or, or some form like that uh, that might be used for abuse of uh, either to get access to systems that they're not supposed to have access to or uh, last one there, ADAD, possibly for uh, using a server as a proxy to other places. Uh, next item here is uh, scan probes on port 22345 TCP. This isn't actually officially registered to a specific port, but it appears to be that this might be associated with Adobe. Uh, that is, this port is certainly associated with this, uh, this service. It's a default port for Adobe Digital Enterprise Platform document services. I think it has to do with a TCP discovery function. If I understand correctly, it's to help identify other servers that are associated with this document services platform. Again, the uh, source of activity here, it's a single source address from uh, China that's performing this scanning activity. And Matt, were you able to find anything additional about this? Not I think so you were much. looking at it. Uh, it seems to be a component of that, that, that document storage system right. that you mentioned. I wasn't quite sure exactly what role it plays, mm -hmm. but if I had to speculate, it sounds like this might be a means of finding information about other systems right. in a cluster of computers. Right. So maybe this is a way of enumerating further systems that might contain valuable documents. Right, right. Again, speculating because I haven't done that much research on right. it. Right, and we, we are speculating about this, and uh, we thought perhaps there might be a vulnerability of something that had been identified uh, back in, you know, we've had some activity around this at, since the uh, beginning of October, as you can see here. So uh, there's a possibility that uh, there's something in specific that they're looking for, or maybe this is just uh, doing some exploratory probing. So let's take a look at the top 10 most probed ports. Not a whole lot of movement here. We've had a couple of them move up, a couple of them move down. I think the uh, most significant upward movement is actually on two ports here, port 443 TCP and port 
8088 TCP. Both of those have moved up in the ranking in terms of the most probed ports. 53 UDP at the top of the list here. A lot of this is actually associated with um, reflective denial service attack activity using DNS services. We're going to take a little bit of a look at that a little bit more closely later on. Port 22 TCP uh, associated with brute force password guessing attacks. 9064, this is uh, searching for uh, proxies, most likely for uh, anonymization capability. Port 443 TCP is uh, high up on there. We're going to take a little bit of a look at that, a little closer look at that as well a bit later. Uh, port 23 TCP, that's Telnet, brute force password guessing, 445 TCP is always on the list associated with the configure activity, and port 8088 TCP. John, you've taken a quick look at this one. Right, so, you know, we typically see proxy scanning on this port as well as a bunch of other 80-ish type mm -hmm. ports, 8000, et cetera. But I did notice that there was some aggressive uh, shell, shell shock scanning for lots of different CGI URLs. They were just spraying and hoping that they would get one that would return. Right. So I think that some of this bump up from you know position 14 to position six this week might be attributed to you know position 14 was just the proxy stuff scanning. Mm -hmm. Getting it up to six might have been the fact that there was additional shell shock scanning going on pretty aggressively, at least within the past few days here, I right. noticed. And we should sort of keep in mind here, this is actually looking for network probing in this analysis, and so there may be, if there is other activity that is persistent connections or repeated connections to the same destination, that might not show up in the same way in this data. So the uh, what you observed in terms of the shell shock exploit testing uh, might not even have had a, a representative effect in the numbers here. Right. I guess it depends, right, in terms of, like, the first attempt, yes, would show up as part right. of the... But as soon as they realize, oh, there's a real machine here, and then they try about a thousand different CGI URLs, yeah, all right. of those aren't going to factor in necessarily right. in terms of aggregate. So in any case, keep your eye out for the shell shock things. Uh, we're going to see a little bit uh, related to that in a moment here. Port 1433 is right after that. That's Microsoft SQL database, and then port 80 TCP showing up on here as well. I wanted to give you a little bit of, a, I guess, some additional insight into some of the shell shock activities. We just talked about the port 8088. Uh, here is actually a combined view of port 443 TCP, that's SSL or uh, HTTPS, and port 80 TCP. Uh, so your two primary web services, and these are probes on those ports combined in a, a river chart here. And basically what we're pointing out here is when the shell that bash shell vulnerability was disclosed on September 25th, there was clearly an increase in the amount of scanning activity on these two ports, most likely looking for web servers that would be likely vulnerable associated with it. A lot of that seems to have died off since then. I guess, uh, you know, it took perhaps a week or so for it to die down. But we are seeing, even just recently, uh, sort of, a, I would describe it as a resurgence in the density of scanning activity or probing activity on port 443 in particular, especially. Again, the port 8088 has showed up as well. Well, we took a look at the graph for port 8088. It wasn't as clear as this, but it certainly showed some subtle upward trend again, as we pointed out. This is probing to look for the server. Once they get into the server and start probing around within to try to hit URLs that might be uh, vulnerable, um, that's not necessarily going to show up in this data. So the amount of aggression might be quite a bit higher once they've found those servers. Next item here is the top 10 most sources doing the probing. This is a case where the 
most significant increase is actually on port 53 UDP. We're going to take a look at that in a few moments here. And again, this, this is actually looking at data from yesterday or October 13th, uh, 2014. So we're not actually looking over a long period of time. We're just looking at a day's worth of activity, which is representative. But this one jumped up 28 spots from uh, position 35. So we typically don't see a lot of sources doing probing on port 53, but in this case, uh, it, it showed up. Taking a look at some of these other ports, 445, always on the list. Port 23, we already talked about that. 2715 is innocuous. It's generally associated with gaming activity. Port 80 TCP, as you might expect, when there's more probing looking for shell shock, there will also be more sources doing that probing and that activity. We talked about port 53 UDP. Uh, we're going to take a little bit closer look at that. Followed by actually 2816 ICMP. I think that actually translates to, uh, I think it's uh, type 11 uh, TCP. And uh, 16470, that's associated with the zero access botnet. And then finally, port 8080 TCP. So taking a little closer look at the scan sources on port 53 UDP, we see a few spikes on this graph. And these are actually associated with the request side, the DNS requests used in DNS reflection attacks. Now, what you would expect to see is just a, a handful of them here. But in this particular case, these spikes indicate that a large number of addresses are targeted in a short period of time or actually perhaps even simultaneously. So what they're really doing here is, um, uh, and let me take a, let me show you in a little more detail what our vantage point is when we're looking at uh, analysis of this type of attack. So this is a graph that uh, actually John had generated some time ago to help explain how reflection denial of service attack takes place. Whereas we have the botnet uh, operator on the left, the bots that he's commanding to uh, perform attack, uh, services on the internet, in this case we're thinking about DNS servers on the internet, open DNS resolvers, and then the victim. The botnet operator provides a command to the bots. What they're doing is sending out request packets with a spoofed source address to these many servers that are out on, out on the internet, and ultimately the response is going toward the victim target. And we're kind of at this vantage point where we see a lot of packets with a spoofed source going toward these services, and it's just uh, by virtue of the fact that we're looking at uh, destination port uh, 53 UDP and the probing, what appears to be probing activity that is uh, single source, that spoof source going to many different DNS servers, ultimately with all those responses going to focus back toward the victim. Because of that vantage point, what we're seeing here is that when we see lots of sources doing those uh, requests, basically they're spreading that uh, attack across a number of large number of addresses. And then uh, as we look at it in more detail, you can see that it, there are specific address blocks that are, that are being uh, targeted in these attacks. And it's, so what they're trying to do is uh, make it more difficult to mit mitigate the attack. I don't think it's significantly more difficult to mitigate the attack, but uh, this is an approach that the attackers are at least trying. And uh, hopefully, I don't know who those targets were, but hopefully they weren't uh, particularly successful. I'll just jump yes, in with an observation. Not that a lot of people can do much to help this, but there is, uh, I think it's BCP38, which is if yep. you are a service provider, if you're a large service provider out there on the internet, it's good practice to implement BCP38, which basically says uh, it's ingress or egress uh, source spoof filtering. Mm -hmm. So it prevents these bots from being allowed to 
spoof their source IP and send the packets out to the DNS servers like we show in those pictures there. And what would happen is at the service provider level, you would say, hey, this bot, he can't really be that source IP because that doesn't make sense. He's not even on my network or whatever. You know, He would know who, who is allowed, the service provider would. And with BCP38, would just drop those packets because they know that they're forged. Uh, right. So that would help prevent uh, these types of reflection attacks, attacks uh, of being able to you know, be successful. Absolutely right, John. So if we uh, we're, we're sort of drawing a line here, there's a uh, network perimeter at that point. It should be checking for the uh, packets coming from those bots. Hopefully they're not bots in the first place, but in this case they are. Uh, but the packets coming in should be coming from an address that you would expect to be assigned at that part of the network. And uh, if it's not, they should drop those packets on the floor and that would keep this uh, problem from recurring in the first place. Right. Or at least, at the very least, reduce it significantly. The last thing I wanted to share with you is the uh, daily reconnaissance index. We haven't taken a look at that, this for a, a short period of time or some time now, uh, probably the last couple of months. So I thought it'd be useful to take a look. The one item that's of particular note here is uh, we talked last week about an event associated with malformed packets. They had a source port and a destination port of uh, zero TCP. Uh, we were speculating about what the uh, potential cause might be of that event. The uh, significance was, was that it was a rather large event. I did, you know, just sort of a back on, of the envelope thing. I think it, uh, I estimated on the order of about 10% of the flows on the internet were associated with that event. Not a particularly good thing. And it's a uh, very readily apparent here in the uh, daily reconnaissance index. I think this is on October 5th, October 6th, I think was the, uh, the date of the event right. uh, last week. It is clearly evident in the, uh, in the activity here. Uh, the good news is it was short lived. Uh, it stopped or actually on top of some things that were done to uh, block that activity from continuing. Um, otherwise, the reconnaissance index is uh, fairly unremarkable. So uh, that's a good thing to not have a particularly remarkable thing. We'd like it to be trending downward. Perhaps a comp a, a, an encouraging aspect of this, the component here associated with the number of sources that are doing the scanning activity has been going down over the last month or so. That's a, uh, that's a positive trend. And that's our show for today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. You can find ThreatTrack on the AT&T Tech channel. That's att.com slash threattrack. It's also available on YouTube as well as on iTunes and audio-only ver version. Uh, and you can follow us on, on uh, Twitter. Our handle is at attsecurity. Uh, we previously have been using uh, a specific account associated with ThreatTrack, but uh, uh, we'd like to uh, we'd like to see you on uh, the ATT security site. So uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Jim. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, John. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.